Good morning. Just a preliminary comment before we get into the message. I am so glad God isn't into leftovers. I know some people love leftovers. Me, I prefer it fresh off the stove. Uh, I like it when it's right out of the pan, right out of the oven. And God demonstrates when the Israelites are going through the desert. He says, all right, I'm going to feed you guys every day. And it's going to be this stuff called manna. But don't make the mistake of collecting any of it to try and keep it left over for the next day because it'll go bad. You're going to have to trust me that each day I'm going to provide for you. And I love the fact that God doesn't just give leftovers. It's not like he does one cool thing in our life and he's like, all right, you got to live on that for the rest of your life. One miracle, one moment, one cool thing. But no, God says, I am alive. I am active. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if I did it before, I can do it again. That we don't have to live on leftovers. We don't have to live on someone else's story. We can live on what God wants to do in us and through us today. I'm glad a few people showed up for church this morning. Uh, How many of you guys like to be alone? How many of you are sitting next to someone who hates being alone? In fact, they wish you were a little closer right now. (laughs) Don't assume. (laughs) While on vacation, I snuck off to play a round of mini golf by myself. And when my wife heard I played by myself, she says, Aw, that's so sad. To which I said, No way, it was awesome. (laughs) When you live in a house of five people in one bathroom... There's no alone time. I don't know why it is that every time I decide to take a shower, that's when everyone has to use the bathroom, like in sync, you know? Uh, One of the best things about being a preacher is I get to be on the stage by myself. And one of the earliest memories is I have of my childhood is I was sitting on the front porch playing with some toys alone, and a neighborhood kid came by and introduced himself and asked if he could play with me. To which I said, no. My name is no. My number is no. You need to let it go. I wanted to play by myself. Now, I'm not antisocial. I like one or two people. But as much as I love people, God has wired us for community. This is especially true when we're hurting. When I'm sick, I'm a huge baby. My wife will tell you, normally I don't like to cuddle. I'm not very big on PDA, but if I'm sneezing and coughing, I want her to take care of me. When she's sick, I put on a hazmat suit and just kind of throw things in her direction that she might need. Here's a a cough drop, babe. Here's some soup. (laughs) Lately, we've been talking about the life of Job, and he's one of those guys that no one has ever woken up and says, man, I wish I would have been born as Job. You know, he doesn't have, like, the ideal life, and yet he becomes this huge example of how to suffer well. And uh, this morning, I want to take a look at my least favorite part of the book of Job. I want to look at his friends. Everyone say, boo. Yeah, we're going to look at Job's friends this morning. Job chapter 2, verse 11, and, and typically I would have you stand up and read with me, but this contains a few names that might be a little tricky, so I'm going to love on you guys and not have you stand up and read this. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the trouble. How many of you guys are glad I didn't have you read it? Yeah, a few of you. 
I heard about all the troubles that had come upon him. They set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him. And everyone say the last phrase with me, comfort him. How many of you guys have ever read the book of Job? How many would say that he, they did a great job comforting Job? Nobody. <laughs> but it was their intention. You know, this, this sounds promising. Three friends coming to the rescue. The three musketeers, one for all and all for one. But they turn out to be more like the three stooges, bringing slaps, smacks, and pokes. They end up making Job's suffering worse. They end up making Job's suffering worse. Have you ever known someone like that? Like you're hurting and they come into this situation and you're just like, oh, not this guy, not this girl. It's like Job has a spider on his face and they decide to, to help him out. They drop kick him in the face to kill the spider. Well, thank you for the whiplash in the process. I heard that my uncle Frank wasn't feeling good this last week. He's 82 years old and he has bronchitis, which he's had four times in a row this year. Uh, and when I called to cheer him up, he said, you know, this is supposed to be the golden years, but the only ones making gold off these years are the doctors. I called to cheer him up, but I ended up being the one laughing the most. After the 34 chapters of Job's friends comforting him, nobody felt very cheerful. In fact, in Job chapter 16, verse 2 and 3, he says, Miserable comforters are you all. Will your long-winded speeches never end? Job, tell us how you really feel. How many of you are like, I wish I could say that to so-and-so? Now, to be fair to Job's friends, we have to understand that there's a trilemma taking place. Not a, not a dilemma, a trilemma taking place. There's these three concepts that are in tension with one another. Number one is the belief that God is just. Number two, the idea that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And number three, Job is claiming that he has been good. Now, if Job claims to be good, but bad is happening to him, then one of two things are going wrong here. Either God's not just or their belief that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people isn't true. Well, they refuse to believe that God's not just. And they refuse to back down on the idea that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. So the one person that they can blame is Job. They turn on Job and say, Job, there must be something wrong with you. You haven't inspected close enough. So they stop fighting for Job and start fighting with Job. They start defending a position and start offending a person. They go from friends to frenemies. People are the worst. Everyone say that with me. It'll be therapeutic. People are the worst. Now, keep in mind that you are a part of people. So, <laughs> on a particularly bad day that I was having, I wanted to create a t-shirt that said, it's a good thing Jesus loves you because I don't. <laughs> it was a particularly bad day. But I imagine that's how Job must be feeling about these friends by the time they get through all these chapters of comforting him. Let's look at a snapshot of each of them and learn about what not to do as friends when someone is hurting. So first is Eliphaz the optimist. Everyone say, Eliphaz the optimist. Job chapter 5, verse 25. This is what he has to say. You will know that your children will be many and your descendants like the grass of the earth. Well, that sounds promising. But you have to keep in mind, Job just lost all 10 of his kids. 
Their scent is still on their clothes. You can still hear the bagpipes playing Amazing Grace. And Eliphaz is already talking about the replacement kids God's going to give Job someday. Don't focus on your lost Job. Be positive. Focus on what God's going to do for you in your future. I was talking to a friend who had to drive their pregnant daughter to the hospital recently. She had had the flu and couldn't hold anything down. She sat in the back seat with a bucket. The hospital was able to give her fluids and to calm her stomach. But when my friend got back into the car, she noticed that the bucket was still sitting in the back seat. And it was 90 degrees out that day. The smell was so bad she wanted to punch herself in the nose. She literally drove all the way from Waukegan home with the windows down and her head out like a puppy. Eliphaz would have said, just ignore the smell. God's going to give you a brand new car someday. And it comes with the new car smell. Thanks, Eliphaz. But I have to deal with reality now. I have to deal with what's going on now. You see, there's a time to grieve and a time to hope. A time to empathize and a time to motivate. What Eliphaz said wasn't entirely wrong. God did bless Job with more kids in chapter 42. But his timing and delivery were awful. He was like a cheerleader at a funeral. Too soon, Eliphaz, too soon. You see, the right thing plus the wrong time equals the wrong thing. I'm going to say that again. The right thing plus the wrong timing is the wrong thing. To make matters worse, Eliphaz sprinkled some pixie dust by playing the God card. In Job chapter 4, verse 12 through 15, it says, A word was secretly brought to me. A spirit glided past my face, and the hair on my body stood on end. In other words, Job, these are not just my words. They're inspired by God. You can't ignore them. You see, when we first found out that my wife was going blind, a well-meaning gentleman told us, God's going to heal her. I was praying, and God said to me that, that he's going to restore her eyesight. And then he quoted Jesus, May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he took that to mean that if there's no blind people in heaven, then there can't be any blind people on earth because it's just not God's will. Well... It's been over a decade, and my wife has continued to lose her eyesight up to 12% a year. Now, his intentions were good, but they were misplaced. He claimed to speak on God's behalf. I heard from God that this is what's going to happen, when he didn't really understand what God was up to. You see, false hope is distracting and damaging. I'm going to say that again. False hope or presumption, we sometimes assume that faith and presumption are the same thing. They're not. Faith is when you respond to something that God says to you. Presumption is when you assume God's going to do something because you think you figured things out. See, we were trying to file for disability, figure out how to navigate our new reality. We both believe in prayer. We both believe in miracles. We have experienced miracles ourselves. But we both, when we went before God, when we found this out, both felt like God said, this is something that you are going to have to struggle with and I will help you through it. That I am going to use this to help others. You see, we're not in heaven right now. I know that's a big surprise to some of you. But we're not in heaven yet. 
And what we need when we're hurting is prayers and presence, but not false promises. If you're going to speak on God's behalf, you better be right. I'm going to say that again. If you're going to speak, thus saith the Lord, you better be right. The second friend, Bildad the moral cop. Everyone say, Bildad the moral cop. Chapter 8, verse 4. When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Wow! How cold can you be? Showing up to the funeral, the kids are all there dead. It's their fault. You need to stop grieving because this is just, just, this is what God does. This is justice. You see, there used to be this magical place called the Lakehurst Mall. It smelled like cinnamon rolls. It had an arcade. I used to work at one of the stores called Montgomery Wards, or what we called Monkey Wards. A couple times a year, we had this medieval practice where we would stay up all night doing inventory. We had scanners that looked like the Star Trek phasers, which was like the coolest part of the whole thing. And we had to inspect every item in the store. We were looking for flaws and missing pieces. I feel like in life, that we're moving at such a fast pace, that we're hydroplaning past all these things, that we're multitasking, we're going from A to B, and we don't do enough introspection in our life. We don't do enough of the David prayer, search me, know me, see if there's any wicked way within me. But the friend, Bildad, makes the mistake of assuming that there's always a one-to-one correlation between sin and suffering. That if you're suffering, there has to be sin. You just got to figure out what it is. And if you get rid of that, then the suffering stops. I really wish that were true. Uh, Since October, I've been suffering. And if I could just figure out what that one secret sin is, it would all go away. But that's not how life works. You see, there's not always a one-to-one correlation. We know from chapter 1 and 2 that Job is going through a spiritual test because of his sky-high righteousness, not because of his sin. It's in that he, that he was blameless, and yet they're suffering. Now, were his kids sinners? Absolutely, just like all of us. My four-year-old was playing with my arm the other day, and I said, why are you doing that? To which he said, it's soft, like Play-Doh. <laughs> He's a sinner. But is that why Job's kids died? We don't know. That's between them and God. You see, some people feel like it's their job to label why bad things happen, to point out for the rest of the world, well, they're suffering because of this. That's not your job. That is not your job. A TV preacher said right after the 2010 Haiti earthquake, and I'm not going to say who it is because I'm not about like gospel and stuff like that. I'm just going to read the quote. They were under the heel of the French, you know, Napoleon III and whatever, and they got together and swore a pact to the devil. They said, we will serve you if you will get us free from the prince. And so the devil said, okay, it's a deal. And they kicked the French out. The Haitians revolted and got themselves free. But ever since, they have been cursed by one thing. How brazen to claim that an entire culture is under some curse because they made some pact with the devil way back when that, where did you find that out at? You know, but some people feel like that's their God-given gift to let everyone know, well, this is why this is going on in your life. And if you would just take care of it, 
Job doesn't need a prophetic voice right now. He needs a sympathetic voice. I'm going to say that again. Job doesn't need a prophetic voice right now. He needs a sympathetic voice. His kids just died. He needs a hug, not a lecture. If God wants to talk about Job, to Job about his kids' thug life, he will when the timing is right. But it was not Bildad's job to do that. Number three, Zophar the insensitive. This just gets better and better. Zophar the insensitive. Everyone say, Zophar the insensitive. Chapter 11, verse 3. Will your idle talk reduce men to silence? Job is pouring out his heart. And Zophar refers to it as idle talk. He sounds like my uncle whenever I would get hurt. He'd say, did somebody need a wambulance? He was a jerk. (laughs) But I was taught that men don't cry. If you're a real man, you suck it up. And you don't cry. Now, I'm not an emotional person. If I were wearing a mood ring, you would think it was broken because it'd be stuck on one color, black. I once saw a t-shirt of Darth Vader's emotions. Every picture, whether he was happy, angry, or sleepy, was all the same dark, charming face. That's me. When we found out that we were having our third child, our best friend jumped up and down screaming, Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! I, on the other hand, when I found out that my wife was pregnant, said rather deadpan, oh, that's great. My wife was disappointed. She wishes I was more like the friend. Shut up, shut up, shut up. I don't have the emotional range for that. But all of us need to lament from time to time. A lament is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. It comes from the Latin word lamenta, meaning weeping or wailing. You see, one-third of the psalms or the the Hebrew hymns are laments. Worship, and I'm going to emphasize this, worship is inauthentic if it's all praise and no lament. I'm going to say that again because we live in a culture where it's all got to be like, yay, it's awesome and God does everything I cannot believe I was able to hit that falsetto. That was, was like my inner Michael Jackson just kind of just coming out. But worship is inauthentic if it's all praise and no lament. The book of Lamentations is one long book of lament, thus the name, Lamentations. Job does a lot of lamenting. Now, he starts with worship. You know, the Lord gave, the Lord took away. The name of the Lord is to be praised, right? But it doesn't stop there. It goes then into several chapters of him lamenting and pouring out his heart. He flat out says at one point, God has done me wrong. And this makes his friends uncomfortable. They begin to attack him even more when he makes that statement. Now, what they fail to keep in mind is that a lament is not a creed or dissertation. It's not going to always be 100% accurate theologically. It's more a reflection of one's feelings than one's faith. This is how I feel. One is thinking out loud, sorting through the junk drawer of one's life. It's raw and unedited, more leanings than landings. You see, right now, Job is saying, I lean towards, this is unfair. 
I'm leaning towards God has done me wrong. Not that Job's going to land there or live there, go teach it in a Sunday school class. Everyone repeat after me, God has done me wrong. But he's just saying, this is how I feel. This is how my heart aches. See, a lament is an opportunity to express one's doubts and one's fears. When is the last time that you cried? When is the last time that you poured your heart out from God? And I'm not talking about the edited, God's great, God's good, everything you do is amazing. I'm talking about being totally real, totally raw. It's like, God, I love you. I trust you, but I don't understand what's going on right now. My heart is hurting. This is my one and only life. I don't get any do-overs, and this feels so unfair. When is the last time you were real? See, there's a reason why God gave us the ability to shed tears. It's therapeutic. See, one of the things that's beautiful about the laments is that they often punctuate it with, but yet I will trust you. But yet I will praise you. Totally pouring one's heart out, but then coming full circle at the end and saying, I'm gonna choose to keep leaning in, to keep pressing through. You see, when a person's hurting, when they're lamenting, we shouldn't be so quick to judge them and be like, well, that's not theologically right. Well, I'm not giving a dissertation right now. I'm just sharing my feelings, my hurts. The last one is a bonus friend. So at the beginning, we're told three friends come along. Then at the end, this young guy kind of shows up, bonus. His name is Elihu. And, uh, and I call him Elihu, sir, talks too much. Um, chapter 36, verse 1, and, and get this, this is his statement. He, he's very humble. When perfect in knowledge is with you. Wow. <laughs> Siri has arrived. <laughs> I can't wait to hear these answers. Elihu talks for six chapters. A six-chapter monologue. Now, he's the youngest guy there, which makes it even funnier. A tweet is 280 characters, a blog, 500 words, an article, 900 words, Elihu's monologue, and, and I counted this, 2,181 words. He reminds me of a guest preacher I once heard. He was candidating to be the new pastor, and, and he was using all his best material according to his wife, and uh, he preached like he was getting paid by the hour. That many words is never necessary. The Sermon on the Mount is only three chapters long, and it's considered like the best sermon ever. It's Jesus. See, some people would say that Elihu had the gift of gab, but I'm not sure Job considered it a gift. His name should have been changed from Elihu to, as my wife put it, anywho. Something she says when she doesn't like what you're saying. Anywho. I have heard anywho a lot. It's funny, though, that it's after this long-winded monologue from this young whippersnapper that God finally shows up, and he's like, all right, I'm just tired of all this. <laughs> this is a lot of nonsense being said, and I'm just going to bring some clarity and some revelation. First of all, all four of you guys, you're wrong. You're, and that's actually frustrating when you're, like, reading through the book of Job for the first time, and you're, like, underlying stuff, like, oh, that sounds kind of good, and oh, that's great. And then you get to the end, and God's like, yeah, that was all wrong. <laughs> Race. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind, should have waited for the end. 
They're terrible friends. Uh, They start with good intentions, but end up making Job feel worse. They're more concerned about defending God than they are about hearing Job's heart. You see, Job didn't invite these guys to his lament. There's no point where he sent out a memo and said, hey, could you guys come listen to me? They're eavesdropping on him just pouring out his heart. But there's one thing that they get right. It's easy to knock these guys, and that's why I started off saying that that there's a real dilemma that's going on, that they, they feel like they're defending the right thing, but it just does more damage than good. But there's one thing that these guys get right, is that they show up. They show up. Think about it. Where's Job's wife right now? She ditches him. We only get one statement from Job's wife, curse God and die. Drop the mic. (laughs) She leaves. When we find Job, he's sitting in a pile of ashes by himself, symbolic of his life right now. Ashes, charred remains of what once was. His employees have left him. All the people he invested in have left him. He is left by himself. Growing up, my grandpa was the richest, most spiritual man I knew. If life were a game of Monopoly, he wouldn't have been Boardwalk or Park Place, but he was on that side of the board. He owned his own business, took trips to Hawaii. He had more gold jewelry than Flavor Flav's teeth. First service had the same exact response. And I told him, I said, you know what's hilarious? Is that my wife will often say, why do you laugh the hardest at your own jokes? And I'm like, because it's so funny. Uh, but my grandpa, you know, he, he was so well that he actually bought a Cadillac when like Cadillacs were the it car for my grandma as a Christmas present. I remember her walking into the garage, surprise, big old bow on top of it. Her doing the shut up, shut up, shut up. I did not get that gift from her. And the more devoted my grandpa was, the bigger his wallet seemed to get. And as a kid, I assumed that those two kind of went hand in hand, money and ministry, faith and the favor of God. It's like, man, look at how devoted grandpa is and look at all the money he has. Like, I want to follow that guy. But in the 1990s, their secretary embezzled money and neglected to pay taxes to the IRS. And justice would have been her going to jail She did not. The government came after my grandparents instead. They were forced to sell their dream home, the home that all of us kids and grandkids grew up and had a lot of our first memories. My grandpa had a nervous breakdown and demanded that my grandma get rid of all his religious books. And you have to understand that my grandpa was a studier. He was a preacher. He was a very devout man. But when that all fell apart, he he just lost it all. He's like, I can't trust God to take care of me anymore. He felt like God had abandoned him. They had to move up into the middle of the woods in Krivitz, Wisconsin, where they lived in a trailer after living a very affluent life for year after year after year. Where was the favor of the Lord? He was broken. But what was worse? And he told me that what hurt the most is that my grandpa was always generous. At any time, two or three people who weren't related to him would be living in his house like a, like a hostel. In fact, there are people to this day, I don't know if they're related to me or not because they just were always around. But when he needed help, no one was there. 
No one was there. Well, Michael W. Smith claims friends are friends forever if the Lord's the Lord of them. And a friend will not say never. That didn't prove true in their life. The church treated my grandpa like he had cooties. If God turned his back on him, then they should do the same. One person came along and bought that Cadillac off of my grandpa to do them a favor. But they bought it at a discount. You see, I'm grateful that I have some great friends. Pastor Jason is an amazing friend. There are 12 people who like you, Jason. (laughs) While I went on vacation recently, Jason volunteered to drive. He knows with all the medical things I'm I'm dealing with that I get very anxious on highways. And so he has a a solid friend says, you know, I'll I'll do the driving. So he drove all the way there. It's a five-hour trip. But while we were there, his grandfather died. And he drove back early to be here for his mom and family and to grieve the loss of a legacy, a man who, much like my grandpa, super devoted to God. And to, for those who don't know my grandpa, he came back around, and I'll tell you that story another time. But, um, you know, so Jason came all the way here, but then he drove the five hours to come all the way back just so he could drive me and my family back home. He was my Morgan Freeman. And I was his Miss Daisy. (laughs) Why can't everyone be more like Jason? This is your Christmas bonus, just in case you were wondering. This is just the the compliments. That's it this year. (laughs) But, But seriously, why can't we be friends like Jason? Willing to drop, willing to sacrifice, willing to be there, and less like Job's friends. You see, it's less about what we say and more about our presence. In fact, people ask me all the time, Pastor Dan, I've got to go to this funeral, and I just, I don't know what to say. I'm so uncomfortable. You know what? It does not matter what you say, because that's not what people are going to remember. They're going to remember whether you were there or not. When my dad died of cancer, there was one young man named Lee Bazat who refused to let me grieve alone. He took me out to Chili's that night and we had hot wings and I could not tell you one thing he said that night. But I could tell you he was there and he refused to allow me to grieve alone. You see, the greatest present is our presence. So Job's friends, they get it right. When they first show up, they sit with him for seven days grieving with him. And if only the Bible stopped in Job chapter 2. But it goes on and then they ruin it by opening their mouths. We need to do less talking and more listening and more just being present. My question I want to challenge you with this morning that I want to leave you with, you see, is it's really easy to ask the question, who's been a friend in my life? Has the church been there for me? When I had to navigate that difficult time, you know, did somebody call me, reach out to me, all that? That's easy to ask that question. But the more important question is what kind of friend have you been? How have you been there for the hurting? And can I tell you something? 
You don't have to wait until you feel good. It's so easy for us to say, well, when I finally get to that place to where I feel good, then I'll be there for others. That day may never come. We don't always get to operate from a place of health and happiness. But we can put the servant towel on like Jesus did when he himself was hurting and knew that the cross was hours away. And he was so grieved that it says that he was crying or sweating drops of blood. And yet he got down and he washed the feet of others. What kind of friend have you been for those who are hurting? Because I guarantee that if we become a church of Jasons, first of all, we will be swole. (laughs) Tough mutters will mean nothing to us anymore. We will own all the bandanas. People show up and say, I didn't get a bandana. because the church of Jasons got them all already. (laughs) But if we become a church of Jasons, if we follow him as he follows Christ, you won't have enough seats in this place because there is a world of hurting people who need a friend like that. There is a world of Job's sitting there in the ashes by themselves waiting for someone to come along and just sit with them, pray for them, be present with them. I want to be a part of that church and I want to be that friend. (laughs) That was so sad. (laughs) That was not a Jason. Yeah, there you go. That's a Jason. All right, well, I learned from Elihu. I'm not going to talk too much. I'm going to get off the stage before I say something wrong. So other than that, we hope you guys have a fantastic week.